0: Hello and welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. My name is Claire Sudbury, my pronouns are she and her and I am a lead engineer at Made Tech. In this episode, we came up against a new situation which we haven't encountered before, which was how to deal with swearing. I'm generally pretty sweary myself, so I didn't even notice when our guest swore a few times during the interview. But it turns out that if we leave the swear words in, we have to set the podcast as being explicit in Apple Podcasts, which can make it inaccessible to various people. So we've decided to follow the brilliant example of Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo in their BBC Film Review programme, and we're going to use Birdsong. replace the swear words. On Wednesday 19th of May 2021, I spoke to Mary Williams. Now, at Medtech, we do a lot of work with public sector bodies who are working under GDS guidelines, that's the Government Digital Service. And Mary was part of the original GDS team, so that just tells me she's going to know a lot about software delivery. Hello, Mary.
1: Hi, Claire. Nice to see you again. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. Mary is the chair of the Lead Developer Conference, which is how I know her. She's also, and this is my favourite thing, a trustee at Stonewall, which is the UK's leading LGBTQ plus rights charity. And she is also an experienced CTO. And I'm pretty sure that means she has been CTO of more than one company. Is that correct? Yes. <laughs> this is also amazing. I mean, I love seeing a female CTO, but, you know, you're not, not happy with just doing it once. How, how many <laughs> times have you been a CTO? So
1: officially with the title, I've been CTO of a tiny healthcare startup way back in the day. But the more relevant ones are Moo, Monzo, and I'm now at Helix, which is a AI-driven company finding treatments for rare diseases.
0: Amazing. Okay, so my first question is, who in this industry are you inspired by?
1: Quite a lot of people, actually. There's a group of women leaders who I'm particularly inspired by. So Camille Fournier, Lara Hogan, Jessie Link... Maria Gutierrez, Gina Trapani are all people I've had the good luck to, to hang out with in a kind of peer mentoring fashion. And, and they're, my, they're my group. They're my sort of peer mentors and inspiration and, and everything <laughs> all rolled together, I suppose.
0: Oh, wonderful. Okay. So we're going to be talking about bringing change to legacy systems, which I know is something that you've done a few times. So what are your top three experiences of bringing change to legacy systems?
1: (laughs) So I I, I joke sometimes I've worked on systems so legacy, they were probably vintage. (laughs) I've worked on systems older than I was at the time. So when I was first, I started my career at Procter & Gamble. It's the, the world's biggest consumer goods company. And I I worked early on there on a system that was literally running on a mainframe, and if that mainframe had gone offline or powered down, there was no backup of the code, there was no way to rebuild the system. Wow! And so there was a multi-billion dollar operation reliance on a mainframe staying alive. So it had not just one backup generator, but two backup generators in the, the facility that it was in. And when I joined the company, this system was already ten years past its originally planned decommission date. Oh wow. And so there had been multiple attempts to replace it, to upgrade to something more more standard, but it was a it was a bespoke system that had been developed. So I worked on one part of that, the order shipping billing part of that coming out and into another system. And I also worked as part of MS Digital on what was a very a sad example of instant legacy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Very expensive, very long program was done to build a new website. Not only did conversion halve when it went live, it it essentially was already outdated at the point that it went live. And so a desktop-only new website went live in early 2010s. Okay. Which was not a great time to have a desktop-only website. Yeah. My favorite moment in... Actually just building a modernization layer on top of that was when we were talking with with some folks in the team and it's not a shock that uh, S's client base is, is a little older than many other retailers. And so one of the questions we asked was you know is there a, is there a lot of iPad use you know there is a there is a great amount of tablet use in at the time 60 and up. And they went, yeah but we're really lucky. we don't see any iPad one anymore. it's all iPad 2. And I brought an iPad 1 in the next day and tried to open the website on it. and It crashed the iPad. It didn't just like crash the browser, it crashed the entire device. I, was like, I think I've worked out why you don't see much iPad 1 traffic. <laughs> it's, it's actually that Your website crashes the entire, <laughs> the entire device. Uh, and then the other um, major legacy program that I worked on w- was much more understandable. So, so when I was at Moo, Moo had grown very, very fast and, and quite organically. And it was all good work, good people making the best choices they could and under the circumstances they were in. But the company had grown to a point where it just wasn't quite flexible enough. And so I think that's a more typical startup style story where you start off building what's needed, you add new features, and and eventually you get to a point where it's just so complex and so entwined and such a ball of mud as people say sometimes that yeah it's very very difficult for anybody new coming in to contribute effectively and so that was that was a much more of a refactor and overhaul kind, kind of approach where I think the others were more big box system replacing either a big bespoke system or or another big box system in many cases
0: yeah yeah the ball of mud, sorry, this, you've just distracted me, but the ball of mud analogy has always bothered me because people say ball of mud and they nearly always show diagrams that look much more like balls of spaghetti. Yeah, or string. And I always think mud is a single homogeneous material where to, it doesn't really, it doesn't really signify complexity it just signifies mud and I, I've never really got it I've always thought why why do people not say spaghetti or string or yeah yeah
1: I, I agree with you I, I've, I always found it a slightly weird term but it is the term that's used so, so I use it too yeah exactly
0: everybody knows what it means even if it doesn't actually make sense when you think about it Okay, so I can't remember where I saw it. I think it was on a slide from one of your talks. You talked about melting monoliths, which I really like. I really like that phrase. And that's kind of what we're describing here, isn't it? It's taking really large systems and, and, and breaking them down. And one of the things that you said is that when you're doing that, there are three types of challenge. There's technical, there's cultural, and there's process. So let's start with technical. What are the typical technical issues that you face when you are melting a monolith
1: so usually just that there's a lot of context missing actually so so one of my very favorite tools in in the whole world is architectural decision records because i think if you can get into the habit with your team of writing down not what you did but the the why so what's the context you were in why did you make this choice and what happened and that has taught me that essentially anytime I've had access to the people who worked on that legacy system earlier on, you find out that things make sense. There was some constraint, there was some circumstance, there was some weird business process, there was some particular stakeholder requirement. There's always a decent reason. Yeah, I genuinely believe most people want to do well at their job and they come to work every day trying to do the best that they can. And I think it's very easy for us to look at a messy code base or a legacy system and, and sort of dismiss everybody who came before us as idiots. And it's it's too easy and it's done too often in our industry, to be blunt. Yeah. And so I sort of tend to go with the approach of saying, this made sense at the time. How do we figure out whether the circumstances and constraints have changed sufficiently that we can change it to what we think would look better now? And some of that's architectural change. Some of that's, I mean, a lot of it tends to be whether you go full microservices or whatever, just separation of concerns, clear interfaces between things, and and ideally a testable kind of API between most things. Because if you can get to the point of having a really good test suite at the boundary of something, then you can pretty much change whatever you like below the line. Because as long as it keeps responding in the same way everything else expects, then, then you're okay. But where you've ended up with all of your business logic and your data and your presentation all just sort of all in one place. It's very hard to get that separation of concerns. And so I think the technical challenges are mostly understanding what was done, why it was done, and not finding out after you've re-implemented or refactored that that weird thing was that way for a reason, and that reason still exists. Yeah. Oh no, we've messed up the end of year accounting for the entire company. (laughs) And I think it, it just makes such a difference if you with the team go, Let's trust that they were doing the best they could in the circumstances they were in. And so getting to the underlying why Mm. of the legacy system, I think, is the most important thing. And then clear separation of concerns, being able to attack the problem piece by piece and trust that you're not going to mess everything else up. I think the worst rebuilds and refactors are the ones that try and go in parallel and then do a big bang cutover. Mm -hmm. It's very, very difficult to do that effectively. It's sometimes inescapable, in particular with finance systems, because you can't really have your books distributed over more than one system for very long. You, you do end up sometimes having to do a hard cut over, So people try, but they it doesn't go very well. Yeah. And so I think being aware of those real life constraints and then figuring out how do you make this more bite-sized? What's the smallest thing that you can change and learn from? How do you go from there? That's the biggest thing technically. Culturally, I think a lot of it's about like believing that the people who came before you weren't weren't Muppets. And I think a lot of that comes from leadership in the team, but also willingness to realize that the code that's running is the code delivering value. As software developers, our focus is often very much on the building, but all the value that's delivered is when things are running. I, I've ended up quite drawn to operations and particularly roles where I'm responsible for operations that have some physical components as well. In a lot of my career, I, I loved at Moo having the manufacturing systems and shipping systems as well i got to work on some of that kind of stuff at png too even a monzo you know there were physical cards being sent out and and so on and so i i think that kind of bringing what a decade ago was talked about as sort of the devops revolution <laughs> which my friend nick Stenning says if you put an announcement out saying you need to hire a DevOps engineer. He knows immediately you have at least three problems because <laughs> <laughs> there's no such thing as a DevOps engineer. <laughs> you think you only need one of them and you're clearly thinking about it as a separate team. Like you've you failed on three fronts already. <laughs> yeah. And so helping teams realize that the value is delivered when things are live, when things are in production and caring just as much about things that are running, even if they are a bit inelegant or a bit muddy, as we said earlier. And the process is really interesting. There's a real temptation when people are replacing a legacy system to also change up all the processes, to change the way of doing things. Mm-hmm. I have literally never seen, and I'm a bit battle scarred at this point, so I have, I've seen quite a lot. I genuinely don't think I've seen a time where somebody did a major process change at the same time as a major systems change and it worked. Yeah. But it's it's very tempting. It's what people want to do but it almost never goes well. And why do you think that is? There's a quote, and I'm not going to remember how to attribute it correctly, so apologies in advance, but essentially that the only complex systems that work evolve from simple systems that work, and nobody ever designs a complex system from blank sheet of paper that works immediately. And I think that's the the problem. I think people iron out what is and isn't going to work in a process much better when they are doing it manually. Yeah. Because then they can see that the process is the problem. I'm not saying you have to go back to actual pieces of paper, but most people can't separate at all, whether it's the software or the process or the way the process has been implemented in the software. Yeah. And so what tends to work best is you get people to adapt their process in their current system. Yeah. Or do it in no system at all or in, you know, Excel. The the true business system of pretty much every business <laughs> in the world. Yeah. And then from there, once it works, then you add tech. Once it works, then you streamline.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because of course the original lean idea was that you, you don't start with a website or an app. You you often start with pieces of paper or spreadsheets or you you work out what works and then then you build the tech once you've worked out whether people even want this thing, how they want to use it.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's been wonderful over the last um, decade or so to see service design really, really coming to the fore a lot more. Lou Downs written a fantastic book called Good Services. And I think they're now running uh, pretty amazing training uh, as well, which is worth looking into if you haven't got anybody in your team trained in, in service design yet. But one of the articles I remember reading that I just found Just wonderful and inspirational, and a a wonderful illustration of why that kind of thinking matters. There's a post called the the easiest way to find it is you search for the blue and white marbles post. Okay. (laughs) And it was essentially somebody going in, I think, to a government department and literally representing. Every single query or every single sort of bit of work that that team did with a marble. And white marbles were when it was a true request. So it's somebody applying for a benefit or whatever else. And a blue marble was when they were calling up because something had gone wrong in the process. Ah. And as they filled this up, it was obvious that actually there was plenty of capacity if things had been done right first time. The problem was that there was so much additional kind of demand created by things going wrong, by people feeling they had to call up three times, or they put their request in twice because they didn't trust that it was being worked on and that kind of stuff. It's one of of my favourite examples of that kind of much broader thinking, because probably anybody else would have just gone, we're not getting enough done because people are just clearly overworked, we need to double the team. And actually, they didn't. They just needed to reduce the error rate and enable the team to work on getting things right first time, which they desperately wanted to do, right? Yeah, of course. Because again, most people want to do well at their job.
0: Yeah. Okay. So going back to technical issues, one of the things that you might want to do do while you're bringing change to legacy tech is you might want to address a release cycle, and I know this is something you have opinions on. So I'm just going to ask you a deliberate question designed to get <laughs> <laughs> to get you talking. Why is it, Mary, <laughs> that releasing faster reduces risk?
1: I think regular releases always reduce risk. I'll tell you an anecdote that that, that may illustrate it better. I think I was the first, and the first person I know of anyway, to move to an agile release approach with SAP. So when I was at, in my early in my career, I had a bunch of financial systems for Procter and Gamble in in SAP. Remind us what SAP stands for. I think it's a German acronym, maybe, but it, it's a big enterprise system. Essentially, mm-hmm. It's what. Most big companies in the world probably have SAP somewhere in the center of them. It's a big complicated beast, essentially. It, it's also the only time that being able to speak German has helped my coding because it, it's a lot easier to develop in ABAP, which is SAP's own bespoke wow. coding language. Okay. If you can speak German, you can understand what the, what's trying to be achieved in it.
0: Wow. I didn't know that. I've never worked on an SAP system. Yeah.
1: So I joined this team as the, the owner for a fairly significant chunk of these finance systems. And at the time when I joined, they were, I think actually they might have been on a six-monthly release cycle. There's a two-month testing window before the release. So the four months prior to that, everything people had been able to fit in with a team of you 10-plus know, developers and a big long list from the customers had been built. And then when you were testing, could have been any of those changes that had messed everything up. And so I think it, that's the fundamental thing. If you think you have to do two months of manual testing, you're going to group a load of stuff together. But it makes it more likely that things are going to go wrong. You're going to have more bugs. They're going to be harder to track down. And when you find them, you're going to find it harder to fix them. Yeah. We moved to releasing every three months and then every month, and the number of critical incidents, major incidents, and minor incidents that were caused by releases went from in the previous year over a hundred critical and major incidents to I think the following year we definitely went down to monthly releases we might even have got to fortnightly one critical incident, two majors okay, and it was literally that scale of difference because we were. Just having to test the thing that we changed, we had a set of regression tests. We automated more of them, but it, you know, a lot of this is stuff that feels unsexy to people, and it it just it makes such a difference. When you can trust that you'll find anything major that's broken, it, it frees you up to be more daring, but also more more safe in a very real way. Yeah. So when I was at the Government Digital Service, I helped build the team that built Gov.uk and the conversation with a bunch of very traditional IT people who thought an annual release was the safest thing to do, WK literally releases dozens of times a day, probably even hundreds at this point, a decade on. That's fantastic.
0: I mean, it's a, when
1: you think about the contrast
0: from once a year to dozens of times a day, that's just astonishing, isn't it? So what would your ideal be? I mean, you mentioned before you got it down from every six months to every two weeks, but now you're talking about dozens of times a day. What would you ideally like to have?
1: I think a lot depends on on the specifics of the system and the business. It needs to be big enough to be a meaningful improvement for users, but it needs to be small enough that you're very, very sure what you're testing. And if you've got an automated test suite, you can then trust that you're, you're not breaking anything else by accident. Yeah. I think with web, web as a paradigm is very well suited to that. Yes. And it's fantastic. And you often have blue-green deployments and you have canaries and you have A-B testing. And so you're not you know, changing everything for everybody, middle of a journey. You've got all of these ways of making it less disruptive for users. But I think when you expand your view and you have finance systems, people don't want their apps to need to be updated every five minutes. It's annoying if you want to get into your banking app and it's like, just just a minute, we need to download some stuff. And, and so I think I, I've become a bit less zealous about it, I suppose, than
0: I used to be. Yeah, OK. And it's a big change in working, isn't it? It's a big shock, particularly if you're going from something like once every six months to several times a day. It's not the same. You're not just doing the same thing, but more often. The way that you structure things is completely different. So what do you need in place in order to be able to release several times a day or even several times a week?
1: combination of things but generally you need regression testing you can rely on and run pretty pretty fast you need an appropriate test pyramid like you know not the ice cream cone of test which Becky Stafford taught me was the the state in most legacy systems which is hardly any unit tests so so if you imagine an ice cream cone the tiny triangle at the bottom is the almost non-existent unit tests then some sort of end-to-end feature tests then a lot of probably manual integration tests and then a whole bunch of other that people do because of something that went wrong before, yeah. and I, I genuinely, the first thing I do joining a new big company is I ask for the cab checklist. A cab is a, a change approval board, and almost every big company's got one. And the cab checklist is the scar tissue of the organisation. Yeah, because every time there's something really big, somebody does a debrief and they add another. Question to the cab list. Yeah. Like, let's make sure the thing that happened already never happens again. So good testing, automation of that testing, ideally the ability to get a really rapid feedback loop. As a developer, I think you want to be able to run tests and have feedback certainly faster than fetching a cup of coffee would take. You'd need good source version control, I think Git is one of the things that's really revolutionized things. I think a lot of people can't even imagine the world we were in when we only had SVN, when we only had CVS. For for folks listening who haven't experienced this, like developing on SharePoint, you had to check out the (laughs) file that you wanted to change. And then only you could work on it and then you'd put it back. Oh, God, I remember that. Yeah. And if somebody else had done a change to the same file, there was no way to merge your changes. So you ended up arguing about who'd done more work and therefore it was awful. (laughs) Awful. I remember actually Joel um, Spolsky, who founded Trello and and Fog Creek and similar, he used to write, I think probably still does write a blog called Joel on Software. And I remember him writing about how distributed source control really might be the thing that changed the industry. And he was right. It really, it really, really was. And so good testing, good source control, good deployment mechanisms, and then all of the observability stuff afterwards so that you can see if something goes wrong. I think that observability part is is where the industry's moved a lot in the last five years. So we used to talk almost separately about logging, monitoring, and alerting. Mm. And this view of, you of course need logging, monitoring, alerting, but What you really need is to spot when things go wrong. If you can spot that something's not right and fix it quite rapidly, that's almost as good as catching it ahead of time, in most cases.
0: Yeah, absolutely. While I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about Made Tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm quite choosy about who I'll work for. Made Tech are software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work almost exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about Made Tech is the people. They've got such passion for making a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is Made Tech. That's M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. We have free books available on our website at madetech.com slash resources slash books, and we're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office. If you go to madetech.com slash careers, you can find out more about that. return to the interview just a quick reminder that before the break we were talking about the benefits of frequent software releases but also what you need in place in order to make that work things such as distributive source control and good observability going back to culture it's not unusual for there to be a combative attitude between dev teams uh, and change approval boards how do you avoid that
1: I think by recognising that the incentives are really, really different. And often in the kind of organisations that still have change approval boards, they also have a completely separate ops team. Mm -hmm. So they have a team that runs the systems where all the value is actually, as we talked about earlier, that are really just rewarded for nothing ever going wrong. Mm -hmm. And then you have a dev team that are only ever rewarded for changing which is the biggest time where there's something going to go wrong. And I think recognising that it's very, very difficult for two groups that are so differently incentivized and so differently valued to come to alignment is the first step. Yeah. I remember working at MS and and my team, if we caused an issue, we would go sit in the ops room and make sure we fixed it. And if that meant stay till 2am, we would do it. Because I think you have to show folks that you care about what they care about too because actually there's nobody in an ops team who doesn't want things to improve for the customers yeah they're just thinking that the customer's going to be more unhappy if they can't do their shopping than if than if that feature is live and so i think a lot of it is about you know reducing the throwing it over the wall aspect A lot of the change in in the last sort of 10, 15 years has been to have kind of you run what you build attitude. So have teams that build software also responsible for it when it's live. And I think that's very smart because you know what? You should put the pain with the people who cause it. (laughs) And so very quickly, if you were being woken up every night because something you and your team put live is screwing up the warehouse or causing trucks to be backed up outside of a depot and let these things really happen, right? They're they're real. Yeah. If you get called out of bed at two AM every night for seven days, you fix that bug, right? Yeah. You roll back the release. Whereas if it's somebody else getting woken up, it's really disruptive to people to, to have that kind of disturbance, right? So I think part of it is about engineers and, and developers assuming responsibility for things when they're in production. And then I think by showing that level of responsibility that level of caring that's how you start to gain the trust of cabs of of ops teams because bluntly they have a much harder job than we do already Mm -hmm. running a big complex system which has often millions of customers directly using it is very tough as a job i think it starts with respect with role modeling that an issue in production is our problem too and one of the things that changed that culture between dev and ops, certainly in that role at MS Digital, was we would go be with them. When we had caused a problem, we would go sit with them. We would be coding the fix and getting it live as quickly as humanly possible. Yeah. And if the most useful thing I could do in the moment was get food for everybody who was having to stay late in the in the ops room to to fix something, then that's what we did. And and I think it's that kind of stuff that weirdly is the most important culturally. It's not anybody making a big announcement or moving the two groups under the same leader or none of that. It, it's about really on the ground. Do people know that you care a lot if you make their life harder and you'll do everything you can to undo it and you won't make the same mistake again? Because I think that's the unforgivable thing is if you screw up and then you just do the same freaking thing the next week, of course they're not going to trust you. You're you're the chaos that is that is messing with the customer experience at that point and they're right to try to protect the customer from you.
0: I think the key there is bringing people together, isn't it? So that they can see what each other is doing and see it from each other's point of view. Because if there is a barrier, if there's a wall between two teams They don't understand what is the pain that is being caused and what it is that they're trying to avoid. But if they're both there at the same time, then they're seeing, Okay, this is why. Mm -hmm. This is what's causing pain. This is why these people are wary. This is what they're worried about. And again, even just removing those barriers altogether. So you talked about DevOps before, so that the devs are responsible for the ops and they actually know what that feels like. I think there's a parallel there as well with a certain form of user testing where you give users whatever your product is, let's say it's a website, you get them to interact with it, and you get the devs to actually watch them interact with it yeah. and understand why it is that they can't find that button and they don't understand what that widget is supposed to do. <laughs> it's not because they're stupid. Yeah. They just have a different view of things. There's nothing
1: more humbling than watching users use the thing you built. Nothing. Yeah. I also, I, I've been in the interesting position of being the chaotic user as well. So when I worked at a tiny healthcare startup, I had an absolutely brilliant uh, Emily Oswald, who was the beginning of our mobile team at the primary dev. And she would watch me using it, using the app we were building. And she'd just be like, how do you not know that you should tap here rather than there when you're using this modal on an iPhone? And I'm just like, just never do. I never hit done. I just, She used to refer to it as the CTO breaking test. (laughs) She'd be like, there's a new one ready that you're probably going to screw up, but... (laughs) <laughs> giving it to you is definitely yeah. a stress test. Just because I you know, clearly wasn't, wasn't using the phone the, the way that was expected. I have had somebody, a, a quite good friend of mine, actually, J- Jessie Link, who's at Twitter. She's a drummer and apparently there's two ways to hold drumsticks. And if you do it one way, then the other way looks really, really weird to you. OK. And I use my phone held in one hand with the thumb of one hand and the thumb and forefinger of the other hand. And apparently it looks very strange to people, but it's because I've got some weird uh, hypermobility in my hands because of uh, the rare disease that I've got.
0: I remember my children poking fun at me because I use a phone like an old person. (laughs) Apparently, you can tell there is a generational difference. People my age, when they interact with their phones, they stab at it a lot with their forefinger, (laughs) just one forefinger and not both thumbs. And also, another thing that shows my age is I learned how to use a mouse as an adult and it was horrible. (laughs) I couldn't control it. It was like it was going all over the place, it wasn't going where I wanted it to go. And I, I can still remember what that felt like that, you know, this thing that seems obvious when you've done it since you were two is a skill that you have to learn.
1: Yeah. My uh, my cousin is also in, in, in tech and we were in South Africa and we were visiting when his little boy was about two years old. And I remember the first time the little boy sat on my lap and used my iPad. Yeah, And then the next morning he went over to his dad who was sat working on his laptop Tried to move something on the screen. <laughs> yeah. And when it didn't work, he just slammed the laptop closed on, on my cousin's <laughs> fingers. And he was just like, this is your doing, isn't it? You've shown him shinier tech than I have, and now he <laughs> believes that every screen should be a touchscreen.
0: Now you're reminding me of a particular unique experience that only parents will know about, which is sticky touchscreens. Not just sticky, but caked in food and grot and God knows what, because your child is just carrying their iPad around with them.
1: (laughs) Oh God, so horrible! (laughs) (laughs) Amazing.
0: Okay, so oh my gosh, time has absolutely moved on a pace. So I'm going to ask you to tell me one thing about you that's true and one thing that's untrue,
1: but don't tell me which is which. So can I give you three? Yes. Two true, one false. Oh, that's even better. Yeah. Yeah. Something I soldered went into space. I speak seven languages and I'm covered in tattoos. Ah, okay. Two truths and a lie. So you soldered something
0: that went into space. Can I ask you what it was? It was an experiment on a satellite An experiment on a satellite. Mm.
1: Wow. It was essentially two circuit boards, one outside exposed to to space and one on the inside of the, the satellite so that we could monitor over a longer period what the impact of radiation and space debris and that kind of stuff was on the two sides of it.
0: And what are the seven languages that you speak?
1: <laughs> well, that's going into a lot of detail very quickly. So like, what, what would your guess be?
0: Oh, right. Okay. Well, I, I know that you grew up in South Africa. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I'm going to say Afrikaans, English. I know that you're currently living in Crete. So I'm going to say Greek, French and German, just because they're the ones I learned at school. Is that five now? Yeah. Okay, and Russian and Chinese. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I don't, I don't speak Greek, French, Russian or uh, Mandarin or Cantonese. Yes, yeah, sorry. But yeah. I am living in Greece and I do need to hurry up and learn more than my Kalimera, Kalispera, Efaristo, which is about the extent of my Greek at the moment. I need to learn the alphabet first. That's the, that's the challenge. Uh, anything with the Roman alphabet, I'm better at.
0: When I was in Greece, I worked out why people say it's all Greek to me. I mean, I'm quite good with languages, and I speak French and German, and I can often pick up other languages just from what I know from English, French, and German. But Greek, there are just no clues. There's nothing because the the alphabet it just was completely bewildering. Yeah, and I have since tried to learn Greek using Duolingo, Mm. and
1: it's it's hard. I process information much better by writing. I'm not visual at all. I'm aphantasic. I can't make pictures of my head at all. So I think I need to buy almost like a kid's handwriting exercise book. And I think that'll be the way I manage to learn the alphabet. Yeah,
0: cool. Okay. So what is the best thing that has happened to you in
1: the last month or so to end on a high? The sea temperature in Crete has finally returned to swimmable levels, and so I can swim much more frequently. Which is why I've ended up in in, in Crete in the first place. P- partly that, and partly Brexit happened, and I wanted to be able to work and operate in Europe. So I, I exercised my EU rights while I <laughs> while I still had them <laughs> last year, so that I could move here. Yeah, but well, I have a rare uh, disease called ellis uh, syndrome, and. In lockdown in the UK, it got very, very difficult to manage because I need lots of physio, lots of hands-on treatment, which obviously w- wasn't safe to do in the early days of COVID. So being able to to swim regularly is a real help. Uh, so that's the that's the best thing that's happened. And yeah, getting back to snorkeling and taking photos of the fish and urchins and, and everything because my ADHD brain does a bit better if I've got something to occupy me rather than just floating around.
0: Oh, that's just, that's amazing. <laughs> So where can people find you and do you have anything coming up that you'd like to
1: plug? So I'm a geek underscore manager on Twitter. The underscore is important just because the poor lad who's got geek manager without the underscore sometimes gets questions that rarely I'm better suited to answer. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's very, he's very patient, bless him. And I mean, I, I suppose the main thing to mention is the, the wide variety of things that we have going on at, at Lead Dev. So we're running Lead Dev Together at the moment, which is a multi-part series that folks attend with their entire team of, you know, leadership peers or tech lead peers or, similar. I'm excited. I'm, I'm running the, the last one of those, which is all about personal development and career coaching and uh, and that kind of stuff. But everything's on leaddev.com and it, it's a great place to, to learn about technical leadership in general.
0: Fantastic. Oh, it's been wonderful to speak to you, Mary. It's so nice to see you.
1: Always nice to see you, Claire.
0: Oh, well, take care. Enjoy the sea. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. As always, to help you digest what you just heard, I'm going to attempt to summarise it. When dealing with legacy systems, Architectural Decision Records, or ADRs, are a really powerful tool that help you get to the underlying why of the legacy system, and remind you that most people come to work every day trying to do the best that they can. When changing legacy systems, think about what's the smallest thing that you can change and learn from, and try to avoid big bang cutovers. Be wary of introducing major process change at the same time as major system change. Nobody ever designs a complex system from a blank sheet of paper that works immediately. What tends to work best is you get people to adapt their process in their current system and once that works, then you add tech. Service design is a great way of taking a step back and employing broader thinking. What are the real issues in your system? and frequent software releases significantly reduce risk. The more things you release simultaneously, the more bugs, the harder to track them down, and the harder to fix them. Blue-green deployments, canary deployments, and A-B testing all help to ensure you're not changing everything for everybody or changing things in the middle of a journey. If you're going to successfully release frequently, you need to be able to run tests and have feedback faster than fetching a cup of coffee. You need good source version control and you need good observability, logging, monitoring and alerting so that you can spot when things go wrong. The change approval board or CAB checklist is the scar tissue of the organization. Never forget the code that's running is the code delivering value and incentives for change approval boards aren't necessarily the same as for developers. You can narrow the gap if you don't separate ops from development. And if you be on call for when your own output goes wrong, avoid silos, bring people together. There's nothing more humbling than watching users use the thing that you built. And that's not all. Stick around for some extra content. This episode, Hack of the Month, comes from me. This hack is clothes related. I've been doing this for 21 days now. I started it to relieve lockdown boredom because I never knew what to wear. I mean, what difference did it make? All I was going to do is come up here and sit at my desk again. But I'm a bit of a hoarder and I own too many clothes, which feels like a waste because most of them just sit in cupboards and never get worn. So I decided to wear a different item of clothing every day until I'd worn every single item of clothing in my wardrobe. And I also decided to keep a record by taking a photo every day on my phone. But it's become a fantastic database. I can now scroll through the photos in my phone. And by the time I've finished, I will have a record of every single item of clothing that I own. Not only will I be able to pick out what I want to wear each day, But it's also going to be really useful at helping me to decide what to get rid of. I can see what suits me, what I like. I can see where the duplication is and I'm going to be able to have a massive clear out. I highly recommend it. public sector means that at Made Tech we really care about making a difference so for this final making life better segment myself and my colleagues will be sharing suggestions for small things we can do to make the world a better place. This tip comes from Adam Friday who's one of our delivery managers here at Made Tech and his recommendation to improve the quality of your life is to dance. He says personally I think music is food for the soul. It can really affect your mood and helps with the isolation too. The dancing is optional, but I do like a boogie in the kitchen. I put some jamiroquai on and my legs flail independently of my body. It really helps my mood. And that's the end of another episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us ratings and reviews because it pushes us up the directories and makes it easier for other people to find us. Speaking of which, thank you to Mesa Canoni, who's recently left us a new review. And I can't resist reading a little bit of it out. She says, I especially enjoyed the story about the Chinese student. Just wow. That story is in Esther Derby's episode, which is episode seven. We'd also like to thank Laurie32442 for their glowing review. I particularly like the fact that they say they're now very unlikely to ever spell my name wrong. I've got a few talks coming up. You can see the details on my events page on Medium, which is linked to from my Twitter profile. And you can find that at Claire Sudbury, which is probably not spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire and Sudbury is spelt E-R-Y at the end, the same as surgery or carvery. You can find Made Tech on Twitter at M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H and do come and say hello. We're very interested to hear your feedback and any suggestions you have for any content for future episodes or just to come and have a chat. Thank you to Rose, our editor, and to Richard Murray for the music. There'll be a link in the description. Also in the description is a link for subscribing to our newsletter. We bring out new episodes every fortnight on Tuesday mornings. Thank you for listening and goodbye.